Welcome again to Hillside. Um, just uh, if you missed the announcements or uh, weren't listening, just a reminder this morning, maybe you can smell it, but we're eating lunch together after second service, and then we have our membership meeting after that lunchtime. Again, if you are not a member, uh, you can still come and check out what's happening. We just You just wouldn't vote on what we're voting on, but we'll talk about what's been happening in the church this year. Um, we will vote on new eldership and new leadership positions for the church, and then also our annual budget. So would welcome for you to be at that. Um, and it's um, authentic Mexican tacos for lunch, so um, I would welcome you just to grab a few and run as fast as you can, too, if you'd like. But um, also just wanted to remind everybody, uh, not everybody, but we also have this um, cry room, and, and it's just a funny way of saying it's a room if you wanted to make noise, there's a spot for you. And um, I realized last week that our worship team during the first service has been using that room, and so I asked them not to. So it's an available space for other people. Um, if you wanted to be in there, if, it felt, if you felt like that would be a place. You can still watch the service. Uh, it's on a TV in there, and um, just it's another option for you. Um, you're welcome to be in here. You're welcome to be in there. Just wanted everybody to know. So this morning we will be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Um, and today we're actually finishing up our study on the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been going through uh, slowly throughout this year with a few interruptions. Um, and I've got to be honest with you guys that I've been surprised this week by how difficult this particular portion of scripture has been to prepare for. And I think, honestly, part of the surprise for me is usually I give the really hard ones to Dan, and so I don't know what I missed here and how I ended up with this one. But um, I know that I warned us all a few weeks ago that Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29, are, they're just going to be hard. They are hard. The end of his sermon is difficult for us. And part of what's difficult for us is that it forces us to examine ourselves. Um, for me, I, I think that this passage actually might be the, one of the most difficult portions of the Bible that I've ever preached. And the reason why, it, again, is not because it's hard for us to understand. There are definitely difficult passages in Scripture for us to understand, but I find this one difficult because it contains things that are hard for me to hear. That, that's why it's hard. So it's hard to preach because it's hard to hear. Um, it isn't hard for us to hear things like you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, which is true. And it, but, it, but it can be hard for us to hear that our salvation will produce fruit, or things like faith without works is dead. That's hard for us to hear. And that obedience to Jesus is going to happen when we follow him. We don't love the word obey or submit. These words of Jesus are hard because they put us again at a fork in a road and they force us again to make a decision. They force us to self-examine. They search out and they challenge us in every way. And so Jesus' words this morning, they don't exist to make a follower of Christ ultra-paranoid. But they are here because in his grace, he wants us to be certain that we are his followers. He wants us to not be left lost on judgment day, another thing we don't love to talk about. He wants us to um, see that God wants what's best for us. 
He's not a killjoy. God isn't a killjoy, but he is fighting for our joy. And so Jesus' words this morning are challenging, but again, it isn't to scare us. It's to invite us to examine ourselves and then to follow him. Something that has come to mind for me quite a bit lately, in fact, as we've been working with our kids who are in middle school, my, my kids who are in middle school, and them standing for their faith, sometimes they end up saying things that people don't like. And it's not in an effort to make people not like them, but something that has come to mind often for me is that the most loving thing that we can say or do for someone isn't always received as the most loving thing by them. Um, I, I think that maybe the best way to illustrate it is the way that we would parent a toddler. Um, a two-year-old may feel like the best place for them to play with their toys is in the middle of a busy street. Maybe you've had a young kid before or seen this happen where they believe that the best thing for them is to play in the street with their trucks and you're not allowing it. You and I, on the other hand, if we're normal adults, will know that the street is not a safe place for a two-year-old um, because we know that even though that that's what they want, it's not going to end well for them on the street. So love, then, in that sense, is not always doing or saying what someone wants to hear. Love can be hard because it is, it is ultimately doing or saying what is best for the person we love. Love doesn't always make us feel good. I'm, I'm reminded of a proverb that says that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Love isn't always fun, but it is always good for us. And so in that light today, I believe that Jesus' words are a gift of his love for his disciples. He is helping us to see the potential streets that we might be playing in. And if you and I were to do a just a very short, recent search of church history, what we would see is that in the most recent years, in about the last 50 years, around 1970, a movement began in the church called the Church Growth Movement. Um, and the goal of that movement was to think about the best way to reach people for Christ, which is admirable, right? And the movement decided that the best way to reach people for Jesus was to be more cultural in our approach. And so subsequently, what they did was they removed anything that would have been off-putting or unattractive to an unchurched person. The goal was to be more inviting to the non-believer, but because of it, because of that movement, we ended up cutting out biblical realities. And what happened was preaching became more topical and less expositional, less working through the word and just talking about it. And so one of the obvious side effects of that is that the church doesn't know what the Bible says. The church doesn't know the words of Jesus, and so we end up with this nearsighted, slimmed-down gospel, and what is at stake is huge. The things that are at stake for us are huge. So the reality then is that you and I live in this era, and we just need to know it. We live in an era where evangelical Christianity can be a status of ours without the reality of, of us being born again into new life. Christianity can become cultural to us. 
And here, here's what I mean. What happens is people will work to display certain cultural traits, and then they'll be identified as a Christian. What are some of those traits? Well, the first thing that you would have to do is you need to work on your vocabulary. If you want to be identified as a Christian, you would say things like fellowship a lot. You would say born again. You would say brother and sister, and you would thank Jesus or say God bless. And then you could be identified as a believer. Or you would display the right social conventions. You display similar attitudes as the Christian culture, and so you like certain things, but honestly, you're probably more identified by the things that you don't like. That's sort of Christian culture. Another thing that we can do to display the correct Christian cultural traits is that we can have the right heritage, meaning this. You're born into the right family, and this can be especially true where we live. If your parents are respectable Christians that have been members of the same church for the last 200 years, which is impossible, but a long time, or even better, if your parents are Christian workers, then you are probably assumed to be a follower of Christ. But in today's passage, Jesus that we're going to study, he's actually speaking into a culture that is almost identical to ours, which is interesting. There are lots of cultural followers of God. There are lots of people that don't know what the Word says, and they're just following Jesus, or following God, they believe. It's what they do. It's what they do on the outside. But Jesus wants to see faith and obedience, and he wants us to see that those two things are not separated. The human race has this incredible capacity for self-delusion, and nowhere is this more perfectly demonstrated than in the lives of many people who claim to know God, but they're not born again. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, it'll be on the screen, Solomon wisely says it this way, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. And so, Jesus, in his love and in his grace, and we have to see it this way, he's not trying to be harsh. He has no desire for us to, to mistake or to be mistaken about who we are. And so we have come to expect, as we have come to expect, Jesus anticipates the problem of cultural Christianity or false professions by those in the church, and he deals with it here at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of Jesus' sermon, he gives us his powerful warning about being sidetracked from true faith. You'll remember that in verses 13 through 20, we studied it in two different weeks, but Jesus warns us against the dangers that come from the outside, right? We had the broad and the narrow road. We had false teachers. But now today, Jesus is going to point us to the dangers that come from ourselves, from within, Self-deception is something that Jesus is very concerned with. And so today he ends his sermon with these words, starting first in verses 21 through 23. And he tells us that religious lip service is not enough. Let's read verses 21 through 23. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
So Jesus starts this morning by holding up an example of people who will give this spectacular profession of belief as they stand before Jesus, but they're going to be rejected on the day of judgment. Now, I think it's important for us to see here this morning that Jesus isn't talking about people that are in cults. He's not talking about intentional hypocrites, nor is he talking about people who have out and out just denied Christ. Jesus is talking about religious people today. People who are convinced they are on the road to heaven when they're really on the broad road to destruction. The problem that Jesus first addresses here is this problem, that correct orthodox knowledge is not what gives us eternal life. It's not just about what you know. Jesus says some will address Jesus as Lord, and they will say the right words, and they will say, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this can be confusing for us, and we need to understand that Jesus does not say here that our profession of him as Lord is unimportant. He's not saying that. We must profess Jesus as Lord if we are to be saved. To claim that I will trust Jesus as my Savior but then not as my Lord would be an indication of insincerity. Look at Romans chapter 10, 9. It says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so if you are a Christian, then you will say, Lord, Lord. You will confess Jesus as your Lord. But not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. Why? Because intellectual orthodoxy, or just knowledge, does not indicate saving faith. James chapter 2, verse 19 says it this way, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So you can know something and not have Jesus be the Lord over your life. And so the problem that Jesus is calling out in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, is that the confession in verse 21 lacks genuine sincerity. The the profession about the Lord Jesus Christ was was nothing but empty words. Jesus gives us some clarity in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, when he quotes Isaiah and he says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so Jesus is pointing out this morning to the people who say the right thing, but their lives do not match it. Jesus says the right words are not an indication of a changed life. There's an engraving that I ran across this week that's on a cathedral in Germany, and it says this, and I I just thought it was really relevant. It says, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Jesus is saying, you can say all the right things, but if it's not real in your life, then it's not real. 
Again, what Jesus wants his hearers to understand is that we can profess Christ as Lord without knowing Christ as Lord. It's possible to profess Christ as Lord and for Jesus then to deem that profession as false or inauthentic. He digs down then a little deeper and he says that even prophesying and miracles in his name are not proof of Christ's lordship in your life. He says not only will people say, Lord, Lord, but they will also say, we prophesied in your name and we did wonders in your name. And we might ask at this point, this question, how could someone prophesy and cast out demons and do miracles in Jesus' name if they are fakes? Well, there are a number of possible answers here. One would be that they were lying when they said they did that. They never did those things that they claimed to have done. But likely, and this is what I believe, is that they were doing powerful things in Jesus' name without a relationship with him, and they were doing it by the power of Satan. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. He says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform, this is the part I want you to see, great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Paul actually notes a similar phenomenon in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 and 9, when he's talking about the Antichrist. He says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with his breath, the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And then this, part, this is the part I want you to see. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. In other words... A person may be able to do great things and get great results, but it doesn't say anything about his relationship with Christ. It's important for us to know that Satan is still, according to Ephesians 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Satan's goal for us, I know I talk about this a lot, but is to do anything to keep people under his bondage. And so Jesus says in these first three verses today that first, right orthodoxy, or just what you know, or great eagerness, just saying Lord, Lord a bunch, or spectacular displays of spiritual power are not proof of his disciples. Well then, the question that I have, and I would guess at this point that you have, is what then is the test of a true profession of faith? How do we know? Look again at verse 21, it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So positively, in verse 21, Jesus is saying that the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who professes Jesus as Lord, and proof that Jesus is Lord in your life means that you will do the will of God the Father who is in heaven. Meaning this, obedience to God is evidence that Christ is Lord over your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Now a logical question that you might be asking, that I know I was asking as I was studying this week, is, okay, is Jesus saying that my salvation is a, a result of my works then? No, he is not saying that, not even close. Jesus is not saying, well, if you will add to your faith your works, then God will forgive you and he will accept you. Jesus is talking about what his disciples look like. 
Jesus' followers come to him on the basis of faith, and then having been forgiven and accepted by his grace, they listen to him and obey him. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is referring then to the Beatitudes and to this deep ethical spiritual obedience that is found in kingdom people, found in people who know they are sinners in need of a Savior. So when Jesus says, the will of my Father, he is referring to God's will as Jesus has revealed it in the Sermon on the Mount. And so in this sermon, Jesus is calling for this profound heart obedience that is not only on the surface, but it permeates the inner being of his disciples. The will of my Father indicates the character and the conduct of the kingdom of God. Again, I, I want to say the goal of this message this morning is not for us to leave here paranoid, but we need to hear Jesus' words. And today, Jesus is saying, I want you to examine yourself. In his grace, he says, look at your lives. Is there kingdom fruit? Jesus, in his grace, he says, don't look for drastic miracles. Don't look for all the knowledge in the world. Jesus isn't asking you this question. He's not saying, how many Sunday school classes have you attended this year? How many Sunday school classes have you taught? How many Bible studies are you in? And how many Bible studies have you attended? He's not asking those questions. Jesus is saying, examine yourself to see if your life conforms to the character of the kingdom of God. How do I know this? How do I know if my life conforms to the kingdom of God? Look at the Beatitudes. Are you poor in spirit? Are you meek? Do you mourn over your sins? Meaning, do you have the positive kingdom quality of strength saying this? Yes, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That's fruit. Do you say, I'm not good enough on my own? And so to the cross I cling, God is the only thing that can, or he's the only one that can do this. It is only by his grace that I can do this. Do you have a merciful spirit? Are you compassionate to those who are hurting and lost and in physical need? Or are you hard-hearted and judgmental? Do you forgive or do you hold on to your grudges as your dearest possession? This is what Jesus is pointing to when he says, The will of my Father. What is happening in your heart? I've got kind of a long quote that I'm going to read to you. It'll be on the screen, but it's from a guy named Don Carson. He brings a very helpful perspective to this passage when he writes this. He says, It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience, but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace, and it turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. In the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real, i.e. obedient ones? And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, 
it is likely, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. Jesus is saying this morning that there is evidence of a follower of Christ. He goes on then from there, and in his grace, he helps us to understand how to proceed. Because we might be asking, okay, well then what do I do? In verses 24 through 27, he gives us this parable that I'm sure many of us know, and we're going to look at it this morning under the heading of foundations. Let me read it for you, verses 24 through 27. It says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So like I said, these are likely very familiar words to a lot of us, but just to break it down this morning, I want us to notice some similarities in the two men in their two houses, and then I want to notice some differences in these two men in their two houses. Notice first the similarities. Both of these men, they're engaged in the exact same activity of house building. Interestingly, we are told of no differences between the houses that they are building, For all we know, the houses could have been identical. We're not told of different abilities of the two men to build their houses. And so for all we know, with the exception of what they built their house on, these guys might have both been excellent craftsmen. Additionally, it even appears that they built their houses in the exact same sort of location. How do we know this? Well, because they experienced the same natural forces, right? Rain, wind, floods. So these two builders in Jesus' story, they're symbolic of two different kinds of people. And the things that they have in common is that they both, both of these men have heard Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Both of them heard the exact same words from exactly the same Lord. And I want us to pause here for a second and just notice that when we think of these similarities between the two men and their two houses, we should be thinking about what Jesus has just said in verses 21 through 23. The two are not separated thoughts. There are many similarities between those who are followers of Jesus Christ and then those who call themselves Christian in name only. In fact, it can sometimes be hard to tell the two apart. They both go to church, they both bow their heads and they take their hats off to pray and they both know things about the Bible, and as Jesus has just told us, they often profess the exact same Lord. So what is the difference then between these two men? Well, Jesus helps us with this parable. In the case of the house, the difference is not readily seen, but it is there and it is profound. In Jesus' analogy, the difference is found in what the houses are resting on. The difference was the foundations. One built on the rock and the other built on the sand. And interestingly, and I think this is important, in Palestine, all land became parched in the summer, causing even the sandy and unstable areas to appear rock solid. And so the true test then came when the rain fell. 
So Jesus in his parable is again meant to illustrate two kinds of people with respect to his teaching. Both men hear Jesus' words, and on a superficial level, the differences between the two cannot be readily seen. But on closer examination, one man heard what Jesus said and then did what Jesus said. And what were the results? He was called wise. For our good, Jesus shares two different qualities of the wise man. First, he hears the words of Christ. And then secondly, the wise man does them. He obeys the words of Christ. James says something similar in James 1.22. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, the one who hears the words of the Lord and then does them is called wise by Jesus. He builds his house on the rock. Jesus says, though, that the one who is called a fool hears Jesus' words and then doesn't do them. I want us to hear this really, really clearly. These are Jesus's words. In this context, what Jesus is saying is building on sand means hearing the word of God and then disobeying it. One of the greatest dangers for us who love the scriptures is to think that hearing the word is equivalent to doing it. And you might say today, yeah, I agree with the teaching that Jesus gives on judging. I should quit judging everyone. I need to show mercy. But if you leave here and you immediately turn to someone and start gossiping or analyzing or judging or critiquing, you might be building your house on sand. We have such a need to hear these words of Jesus because as students of the Bible, which is what we are at church, we are in great danger being foolish people who incorrectly conclude that because I'm hearing the truth and because I'm agreeing with the truth and I'm automatically practicing the truth. The wise man hears Jesus' words but also puts them into practice and the results are dramatic. The wise man's house stands in the storm and the foolish man's house falls. The storm destroyed the house on the sand. And the exact same storm and the exact same storm elements hit both houses. The wise man wasn't protected from stress. He didn't live on easy street. He wasn't protected from strain or promised exemption from conflict. But when the storm came, his house wasn't ruined. And Jesus wants us to know this morning that the house that is not built on the correct foundation, it's going to fall. And this is not only true during times of trial, but it is true in the ultimate sense. I found a quote from David Platt very helpful. He says this, We must hear Jesus when he says that there is a storm coming. He is not talking about what we so often identify as the storms of life. Those storms are real, they're painful, storms like cancer, storms like divorce, and losing a loved one, and the Bible certainly addresses them. However, Jesus is referring to a cataclysmic reality, a final and utterly devastating storm of the future judgment of God. So this passage today, and I realize this based on how quiet our room is, is really sobering. 
And as always, I think at the very end of a passage like this, the question is, what do we do with Jesus' words today? What is Jesus pointing us to this morning? And maybe the greatest question, how do I know that I am building my life on the right foundation? Because I don't want us to hear these words of Jesus and then just walk away. I was thinking this week that in our reality, it's really easy to fake. It's easy to fool each other with who we are. It's easy to fool our close friends. And, and we can even fool ourselves, I think. We can have Christian culture and vocabulary down. Our lives or our houses can look identical to other Christians. But Jesus' words today clearly say that he doesn't want us to have heard his entire sermon and then just fall into some delusion that all it takes is hearing it. It's apparent as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, that he is instilling really some healthy fear into our lives, and he wants us to examine our outside influences, and he wants us to examine the inside as well. Why does Jesus end his sermon with such hard words? Here's why I think it's crucial that we get this. Jesus believed in heaven and hell, and he came to deliver us from hell. And we have to see this for what it is. Jesus' words are his love and his grace to us this morning. And the ultimate question that he leaves us with today is this, what foundation are you building your life upon? Really, the ultimate question is, are you building your life upon the rock? Who is the rock? The rock is Jesus Christ. Worship team, you can come on up. Sometimes I think even for those of us who would call ourselves believers, we don't build a foundation on the rock for the Christian life because we don't like what that foundation must be. In the end, the foundation is a person. And he's a person who demands that he be our Lord as well as our Savior. We love the Savior part. We struggle with the Lord part. A rock foundation is a relationship with Jesus Christ whose death on the cross shows us how God feels about sin. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus is called the living stone. Look at verse 6, it says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul also wrote that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Sometimes I think we struggle with the foundation because we don't want Jesus to be the Lord over our lives. And could it be possible today that you might want to have the teachings of Jesus Christ without Jesus being the Lord over your life? 
Maybe some of us get caught up in the desire to control our own Christian lives and we don't want to relinquish complete control of our lives to Christ. And Christ says today that it's not enough to just profess with our mouths just to know him. You must build your life upon him. You must entrust yourself to him. It is abandonment to Christ. It is a commitment to Christ alone. And Jesus, again today, he tells us that he is the way. He is the only way to life. He has said it multiple times at the close of this Sermon on the Mount. He says, I am the way. You need to take the narrow road. It's me. I am the gate. You need to go through the narrow gate. It's me. He is the foundation, he says. It is all about Jesus. It has always been all about Jesus. And he is calling his disciples, you and me, to build our lives upon him and nothing else. The questions that Jesus leaves us with this morning are these. What is my foundation in life? Upon what is my life built? Is my trust in the cross of Jesus Christ and that only? Is he my cornerstone or is he someone I learn about on Sunday mornings? When I pick up my Bible and read what it says to do, do I faithfully do it? Of course I fail at times, but then do I get back up and go forward again in obedience with trust in his forgiveness and in his help? Do I find Christ, his person, his commandments, his promises to be my mainstay in times of trial? Do I find myself increasingly turning away from the lesser things of life and turning to him instead? There are only two foundations, Jesus says. Which one are you resting upon? These are tough questions and they cause us to examine our lives, but we have to see this for what it is. I know I've said this a hundred times, but God in his grace gives us all this morning the opportunity to look at our foundation and then to build upon the right one. Is the life that you are building daily eternally reliable? Let me end this morning with the words of a very well-known hymn. I'm sure most of us know it. But I pray that it would be our reality as we leave this place today. The words are this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. May he be our foundation in life and nothing else. Let's pray. Father, thank you again this morning for your word. God, thank you that you love us so deeply, that you're not okay with us just being knowledgeable about what the word says, but that you would call us into a deeper life that is full of joy. God, that you would call us into a deeper life that even when the winds come and the rains come and the floods come, that we would still stand. Lord, today I pray that we would be a people that build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
This morning we are going to take communion together as a body. We will do the uh, top part of the communion cup first with the little wafer that's on top, which represents Jesus' body, broken body, and then uh, we'll sing a song and then we will do the juice part together, which represents Jesus' blood. One thing we ask for here at Hillside is anyone can take communion with us. You don't have to be a member, but we do ask that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you are building your life on the solid rock of Christ. If you haven't done that, please don't receive communion with us this morning. It doesn't mean anything otherwise. But um, if you have, you are welcome and invited to take communion with us this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 23, it, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and this is why we take bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This morning, as we partake of communion together and we remember Christ's broken body on the cross, I would love for us also to remember that Jesus has bought for us joy in this life, kingdom life when we build our life upon him. Let's partake together. First Corinthians chapter 11 verse 25 says this, in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He says this also in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take this juice that represents the blood of Jesus Christ this morning, let's give thanks to God for what he has purchased for us by his death on the cross. <laughs> 